Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Uh, Hello, today is... December 12, 2019, Charles Marshall here with Phil Panelo, and we will be breaking down exactly what's been going on in the latest iteration of the Chase-Wamu debacle, basically, and government grab from 2008. Yes, the merger goes all that far back, talking more than 10 years now. And what Bill will be breaking down on today's show is how we basically have a smoking gun now to show that when Chase came into theoretical possession of the WAMU notes through the merger, which essentially uh, the FDIC was in the middle of, that that never got properly not suspended, but it was it was never even properly um, facilitated. So, in other words, the FDIC did not ratify anything. They were really out of the loop, even though they were the intermediary used to make everything legally legitimate and look like there were no issues. While there are a boatload of issues, again, there's a smoking gun issue here, and that's one of the things Bill will be talking about on today's show. And I will remind listeners that, as always, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. It's made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount that you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. So go ahead and uh, break this down, if you would, Bill, for the listeners. I know, you know, I like, I like the word intel because that means a, a lot of not crazy things or really broad things. It means that. There's some specific intelligence. There's some specific information that I know you've gathered and garnered from the absolutely dogged investigation you've done into this exact area over a period of years. We're talking about the WAMU Chase merger, where Chase took over WAMU's mortgage assets way back in 2008. So, yeah, break down, if you would, for the listeners, uh, What's what's the smoking gun with why that was as bad as we all thought it was? (laughs) 
I'd be happy to. Thanks, Charles. Well, this piece of evidence that I posted on the blog I think is very explosive, and as you said, and I say it's a smoking gun um, piece of evidence that I believe closes the loop on the entire um, position, theory, whatever you want to call it, that uh, I've been investigating for almost a decade now on this WAMU Chase FDIC fiasco, where, <clears throat> look, it's uh, uh, the evidence was becoming more and more evident each and every day that uh, Chase did not acquire ownership of these WAMU loans, that WAMU sold and securitized them uh, prior to the uh, receivership in 2008. And up until recently, the one of the most critical breakthroughs that we had was uh, the investor code AO1, and I've posted articles about that before, and I've spoken to that, and I've testified in cases around the country as to uh, the fact that Washington Mutual and then Chase were using a servicing platform system called the uh, MSP system that contains um, a, a portion in that system called the loan transfer history screenshots that they have in their custody and control that shows uh, where these loans went after origination by WAMU to its its current state during the life of the loan. And that loan transfer history identifies uh, investor codes and dates of transfer of the beneficial interest or mortgage interests of, of these um, assets. So uh, the big piece of evidence uh, to date really was this AO1 code to which Chase eventually stipulated that that code belonged to Washington Mutual Asset Acceptance Corp., a non-bank subsidiary of WAMU, and that if the loan had that AO1 code, they stipulated um, it did not go through the FDIC in terms of beneficial ownership. Um, and that stipulation by Chase went counter to their testimony and positions that they had gone and had taken in various jurisdictions all the way up until that point in time. And that, and that stipulation came down in about 2017. And up until then, uh, they were you know, saying that that code is bank-owned, bank-owned, like, you know, parroting that. Um, and, and that, in fact, all the codes, for that matter, they were saying were either WAMU or Chase-owned. And so I would present, and I testify, and I've been posting, and we've been, uh, and other attorneys and people that have been working these cases around the country have been uh, trying to get the courts to pay attention to all of this evidence, uh, whether it's, uh, a lack of any schedule ever being produced by the FDIC in the purchase and assumption agreement to you name it. There's uh, probably a checklist of, uh, of, of of 25 critical pieces of evidence uh, that, you know, was pointing directly to the fact that Chase doesn't own it. But, um, but we couldn't really get to this critical point of proving that once the, the – property was foreclosed or whatnot, that we could show that in, indeed, or in fact, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, upon liquidation of the foreclosed REO property, uh, was not, did not own the property, okay? So how this piece of evidence that I posted came about is, uh, as most listeners may have been following, is that I am currently involved in a in my uh, my own personal case in Oregon, it's called an ejectment action for title and possession 
to uh, my property that originally had a Washington Mutual uh, deed of trust on it, to which uh, I won't get into too much detail, but there was a rescission that was involved and so on and so forth. But anyhow, the property, uh, the story goes anyway, um, by Chase and those on that side of the fence that they, they acquired the deed of trust through the FDIC, and therefore they went ahead and proceeded to foreclose, even even though the face of the documents don't say that, but that's kind of generally the story, and that's generally the story uh, in this fact pattern throughout all these cases in the United States. But until I got into this case where I'm suing the defendant who is the current occupant, the party who actually purchased the property uh, in the REO transaction, or allegedly, um, it wasn't until the title company who who issued a title insurance policy on this property to the buyers uh, until we got into some formal discovery that, from the title carrier who produced this document, which uh, when I received it in discovery and I was reviewing, my you know uh, my eyeballs just you know, almost popped out of my skull because what it says in the escrow wiring instructions um, to the to the title companies that's closing the transaction to the to the buyer um, who was paying cash for this property at the time, and this is back in 2011. The wiring instructions say that it's a, uh, that the wire or the funds from the closing were to be wired into a J.P. Morgan Chase account that they had set up. However, the title on the account is what's so telling. That the title of the account is, and I'm going to quote this: Washington Mutual Bank in trust for the REO proceeds in trust for various investors and mortgagors. And, of course, they have the routing number and so on and so forth. That piece of evidence right there is about as smoking gun proof as you're going to get that the the funds from the liquidated home after a foreclosure was not going to pay off the alleged party who actually claimed beneficial ownership and who foreclosed and, you know, claiming they owned it. Uh, it was to go into these various undisclosed investors, which I've been harping on and saying and pointing out uh, for all these years, that the uh, the identities of these investors, the parties who really own the debt, who are technically the ones who are the only ones who would be entitled to seek the remedy of foreclosure, um, have, com- have been completely concealed and hidden by Chase. So Chase has taken control of everything, fabricated all the documents to proceed in, especially in the non-judicial foreclosure states where the statutory requirements are very strict in terms of the documents that have to be uh, filed and done correctly to get to the the foreclosure sale, which includes the substitution of trustees, the assignments, and all of that. Those documents are all false. They're all completely false, claiming that um, uh, that Chase was the, the beneficiary or the owner of the loans. It's, it's uh, I don't, you know, whatever you want to call it, fraud, misrepresentation. I mean, I'm sure there's a whole plethora of different things that you uh, can be attached to this. But again, it closes that loop and proves once and for all. Now, my home was foreclosed back then, non-judicially, and here's the thing. In these non-judicial cases where the homes are foreclosed, the homeowners aren't going to have 
privy to any of this information. It's so, I mean, the only way you're going to find out, number one, if you have, let's say, investor code A01 on your screenshots is through some sort of formal discovery, some sort of litigation. Most borrowers are never going to get to that point after the non-judicial foreclosure uh, has been carried out, okay? And even if they got to that point and filed some sort of litigation, they're going to get completely stonewalled in the discovery efforts if they went to Chase and said, hey, I want those screenshots that are going to show now AO1. You think they're going to cough that up or give it up? Absolutely not. But... Sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, and a subpoena was issued in my current case by the defendants, not even from me. I have nothing to do with it. They issued a subpoena to Chase. Chase returned documents, and lo and behold, I confirmed that my screenshots showed investor code A01. That's something that, you know, again, something I never would have known about or had privy to uh, up until the, the, these documents were now produced in the ejectment action. So... Uh, this is what they've been getting away with for a long time, and now I can I can take this these documents and I can specifically show if Chase is claiming ownership of this Wamu loan. Uh, here, essentially, how where the bodies are buried. Here's what proves that the loan was not owned uh, by Washington Mutual even at the time of the uh, the receivership. It was sold securitized to undisclosed investors, and those parties are being concealed. And so we've been talking about this with Neil and everything else for quite some time about the money trail in terms of, you know, how do you get your hands on the wire transfer receipts, the consideration, all these documents that profess these transactions that you try to get to the bottom of the actual transaction, and and it's it's rare, if not impossible, to get your mitts on these on these types of documents so it's uh it's amazing i think this i think this document right here is um explosive i think it's going to uh uh be very relevant now moving forward in these cases and i think this is kind of the beginning hopefully of uh the courts now rubber stamping um these foreclosures judicial non-judicial whatever it might be uh, by this worn-out story that Chase just says it, it was a one we wrong, we own it, because now we can clearly show that they don't. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's great analysis, Bill. A uh, couple of things that I can note about that. One is this really is truly a smoking gun. This is not just the basis for an evidentiary presentation to go contradict what operationally is the fraud, you know, whether it's fraud or not legally. Of course, that has to be proved out in court. As an attorney, I'll be the first to say, and I'll give the disclaimer, you know, we're not claiming fraud per se without any other analysis on anything or on anyone. This is a radio show where we talk about topics. We're giving general information only. However, yes, there is uh, a scent of fraud, and there are a number of aspects that we're discussing <laughs> that very much sound in fraud. To prove out on all that, it's for another day and for another time. However, this is a critical show. This is a critical moment to expose that we are at a place now where we have an evidentiary basis for exposing the fraud. And the other thing I'll ask you, Bill, 
which I think is also very important, especially for, you know, those back east, the Midwest, even out west where judicial foreclosures are still in play. On the judicial foreclosure front, how have you seen AO1 play in? My guess is that notwithstanding that the, the, the judicial foreclosure process, yes, it's a little more of a speed bump, whereas the non-judicial foreclosure process is pretty much just speed bump unless it's, you know, very finely and, frankly, uh, you know, pushingly advanced from the borrower's side, um, that the judicial foreclosure front theoretically uh, is a better opportunity for the AL1 stuff to be vetted. So I'm asking you, in your experience with the judicial foreclosure cases you've handled, does AL1 come up even without a lot of discovery and a lot of uh, vetting of particular details? Yeah, I mean it's 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 coming up, uh, and and oh, and it's coming up more in cases that I'm involved in because I'm the one who's raising the issue. And when if I get involved in a case early enough, which I can't tell people and harp on uh, more strenuously, is that you know the sooner you start taking preemptive pre. Uh, preemptive measures, I guess, or and you start to attack where you're, where you're going after specific discovery because now we know what they have and what's in their custody control. We know what these documents now mean, and, and it's really important to be proactive in prosecuting and going after these documents. So one of the things that, uh, you know, the, one of the first things I, I point out to that's required in discovery that we know they have, again, is those MSP screenshots, those loan transfer history screenshots. There's quite a few other specific areas uh, within their uh, servicing platform that are very incriminating <laughs> or can be if they're uh, not tampered with or altered or whatnot or if they're produced. And so um, I have a checklist of some very specific things to go after. But in the judicial setting, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, the, part, the, the money trail here. What's so absurd about the parties who invested in these so-called trusts. If you look at a WAMU trust, let's say there's a case where uh, Chase claims they got it through the FDIC and then they try to dump it onto a trust after the fact, whether that's judicial, non-judicial, that's a common uh, fact pattern where they try to first execute the assignment from the FDIC to itself in in their uh, as attorney, in fact, uh, to themselves, uh, and then they, the very next sequential assignment is to try to dump it into a trust. Well, for example, if you look at any of these WAMU trusts, and I'll just take, for example, the WAMU 2007 HY6 trust, okay? So if you, if you go to the SEC and you look at those uh, filings, what's so absurd there's a couple of things, is that the prospectus supplements, which they told the investors, as opposed to what the governing documents say can and cannot be done, are completely in opposite. All right. So, for example, in this 2007 HY6 trust, if you look in the risk factor section, one of the things that, you know, makes your head spin, especially if I were an investor reading this, I would have ran for the hills. But it says the servicer will be permitted to co-mingle collections on the mortgage loans with its own funds and may use the co-mingled funds for its own benefit. So essentially what they're saying here is 
all the money that flows in from home, from borrowers and that comes into the servicers, it's all going to be put into some big old, you know, pot, some big black hole pot. And we have the ability, or at least we're telling you, we're going to dabble in that and commingle the funds, and we're going to invest it for our own benefit. And if we win, we keep it. If we lose, you lose. It's sort of tail, you know, heads we win, tails you lose scenario. But then you turn the the to the next document, which is the actual governing document, and it states in Section 2.03 under the separateness requirements, it says that the trust is expressly forbidden from commingling the assets of the funds coming in. Okay, so it's it's completely forbidden for the trust agreement, but but on the other hand, in the prospectus, they say they're going to do it. They also say as a risk factor in all of these trusts, whether they're disclosed or not, I believe the the, the fact pattern is the same amongst all of the securitization trusts, uh, disclosed or not, that Washington Mutual admitted directly to the investors that they're not going to endorse the notes. And they're, uh, 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 to reflect the transfer or sale to any of these trusts, and no assignments were ever going to be uh, created uh, or prepared to show any of the, the, the transfers to the trust. So they're basically admitting right up front to the investors that we're, you know, we don't have a perfected chain of title here. We're not, we're not even going to document a valid chain of title, and we're going to co-mingle and dip our hands in the pot and spend the money as we see fit. Okay, so it's just absurd. But then you point these things out when they come into a judicial case and say, well, here's the original note. It's endorsed by the WAMU officer and everything else. And you say, well, wait a minute. Who endorsed it? When was it endorsed? Because you admitted in the SEC filings that these acts were not going to be done. So at least I'm entitled to know if you said they weren't going to be done, who put it on and when? Show us, you know, uh, who applied that Cynthia Riley endorsement on the note or whatever name that's, that shows up on this image copy. Well, once you start pushing those buttons, the, you know, the emperor has no clothes. They have no response, no in, no information, no evidence, nothing to uh, explain um, these uh, these key documents that they're relying on is evidence. And so uh, I think, again, I've used this AO1 code, going back to your question, in judicial proceedings because that was a stipulation by Chase and U.S. Bank in the Fox case in California uh, where they stipulated that because that code was AO1, it did not go through the FDIC, and that that code meant that it belonged to WAMU Asset Acceptance Corp. So I've used that and carried it over to the judicial cases where Chase comes in and says, no, AO1's bank-owned. That was that means it was WAMU-owned, it was bank-owned, it was never securitized, and so on and so forth. And, well, it, I tell you what, I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty ins- – it's pretty obvious, uh, based on your own stipulation against your interest, that that's not the case. Okay, so you can't have it both yeah, ways. Yeah, that's a compelling, that's a compelling legal finding that you just articulated for the listeners. I mean, you're you're saying that in a specific California case, it sounds like you're saying there was a judge adjudicated order, or there was a stipulation, which obviously you know has to be signed by a judge still. But at the end of the day, there was a court order indicating that the FDIC is completely out of the loop, was completely out of the loop, was not part of 
any ownership chain related to a Chase WAMU specific uh, loan transfer involving AO1. I mean, just to confirm, that's, I, I understand that's what you said. Is that what you just said? Well, yeah. I mean, but the, the thing is, is that Chase was caught in a position where they, you know, based on good prosecution here, uh, you know, the attorneys handling the case kept pushing in, uh, in, in this issue, and Chase was caught in a position where their story was that the, the loan in the Fox case was actually uh, securitized properly, like we can believe that, to uh, a WAMU trust back, and I forgot the year, I think it was an 07 series trust as well, and their story was, hey, this loan was uh, sold and securitized and transferred by these parties by the closing date, yada, yada, and they had to take that story because that's what the PSA and everything said happened. Uh, and so they were stuck, because if their story was that this loan was properly securitized, well, then clearly it didn't go through the FDIC. And so they had no other choice but to go on the record and say, well, uh, if this loan was securitized properly, yes, AO1 was the depositor, and yes, uh, it didn't go through the FDIC. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, I'm going to make a prediction here that uh, virtually every WAMU loan out there, they, they sold and securitized virtually everything. And I would, I would say it's safe to say that uh, we're in the high 90%, that everybody who had a WAMU loan during the 2000 period leading up to the uh, receivership has a private investor code, most likely AO1, in that servicing screenshot. And uh, that's the number one document to go after in discovery, and that's going to lead you to um, hopefully – um, uh, you know, pointing these things out, and especially the evidence that I've uncovered, um, is, is going to be critical to uh, explain to the court. Yeah, and this, and, you know, and this also answers the <laughs> answers the question of what I've been talking about for a long time too. Is that when we get into depositions, and we ask the witnesses the obvious question of if the if the property is liquidated and sold upon sale, who's entitled to the proceeds? Well. The, the answer should be obvious, the party who's foreclosing. But we get this strange response all the time is, I don't know. I don't know who's entitled to that. Well, now you take a look at uh, uh, these escrow instructions that I'm talking about here that, that were uncovered or came out, and it's clear the money is just going into some pot some dark hole that Chase controls, and it's not going to any particular identifiable party. Okay, so one side note, you know, when you're in these non-judicial states like Oregon, if you're going to carry out a non-judicial state uh, foreclosure, you've got to record, if you're going to do it, uh, the assignments of the, of the beneficiary who's carrying out the sale. Those assignments must be recorded. At least back then, in the Brandrup decision, um, and uh, NIDA coming out of Oregon, is that those are required to be recorded. Well, clearly, uh, the beneficial uh, assignments were never done. <laughs> they're, they're hidden and, and concealed. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely correct that any document as part of the non-judicial foreclosure chain, so to speak, the fundamental documents need to be recorded. You know, all of these non-judicial foreclosure states will, on the one hand, say, look, statute of frauds, of course, the relevant assignments have to be in writing, but the operative document related to the foreclosure, that's always going to be a substitution of trustee, 
it's always going to be a notice of default. It's always going to be a notice of trustee sale. And it, it, it typically ends up being interpreted as saying it needs to be assignment involving all of those things, including the substitution of trustee. <clears throat> and as I believe you were just indicating, it even goes beyond assignments, you know, even, even more afield than that. I mean, I think the fundamental takeaway here is that the AO1 thing is a smoking gun. This is a true piece of fundamental evidence that shows that, that the FDIC did not control the relevant uh, ownership interest in transferring loans from Wabo to Chase. That's fundamental, not incidental. We will continue addressing this on another show. And as always, Bill, I thank you for being with me here today, and we will be back. Thanks, Charles. Time goes by fast. Indeed. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.